church is dismissed as we sing our next song, His Mercy is More. You may be seated. Open your Bibles up to Mark chapter 9. <clears throat> Mark 9. This is going to be our last message in Mark 9. Mark chapter 9. When I was in college, I uh, traveled with a group of guys. Uh, we went around the United States. They sang, I preached. And one time we were in, uh, a guy, a friend of mine, were in a car with an older couple. And I don't remember, I think they were, had been married 40, 50 years. And at that time, it seemed like a really long time. And it was an old Buick and or something like that. Kind of smelled like mothballs in there and stuff. And I can remember this older couple were sitting in the front. He was driving. And he kept calling her sweetie and darling. Sometimes he threw out mom. A little, okay. You've ever met someone like that? Probably not been in the Midwest otherwise. Anyways, and, uh, and you know, we thought, well, that's, it's kind of cute. Like these little names that he throws out to her. And, and she said to us, well, you know why he does that? Because he can't remember my real name. And he said, yeah, that's not true. Yes, I can, darling. (laughs) And they told a story about how one time she said, I'm not going to talk to you until you call me by my real name. And he actually, this is their story. He actually couldn't remember her name for a whole day. (laughs) And so she didn't talk to him the whole day long. But all relationships have difficulties, don't they? doesn't matter how long you're married. (laughs) It can be even up to 40, 50 years because all relationships involve two sinners trying to coexist. This message is the last message in our series on Christ's principles for relational unity from Mark 9, 30 through 50. 
And we, we were talking about a couple weeks ago how the disciples in Christ were coming down from Caesarea Philippi to Galilee. And on their way down, at some point, the disciples begin to argue with one another about who was the greatest. And they also had disunity in some sense with Jesus as well, because they didn't accept the plain teaching that Jesus had given them. And that was that he was going to suffer and die and be resurrected. And you could see that in Mark eight thirty one and Mark 9, 9 and Mark 9, 30. So there's disunity among the disciples, disunity with Christ. It wasn't Christ's fault. It was their own fault. But on that road, the disciples were disunified. And so in verse 33, they come to Capernaum to probably what we think was the house of Peter. And Jesus teaches on principles for Christian unity. Look at verse 33. Mark 9, 33 says, And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and then from here to verse 50, he teaches on principles for Christian unity. And so look how verse 50 ends. The last phrase, last sentence of verse 50 says, Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So this, this passage of teaching is probably a summary of what he taught them. And he was targeting really their disunity and teaching them like this is what it means to have true Christian relationship and unity. And so we shared a couple of those principles. And we're not going to go through all of them again, but the first one, um, I should say we're not going to teach through all of them again, but the first one was that truth clarifies and misunderstanding confuses. And so when you're in a relationship and there's misunderstanding and confusions, it causes disunity. So if you're confused, then go to that person and seek clarity, seek the truth. Number two, we said the root of conflict is is a self-exaltation, which we said is, is pride. It's really putting ourselves in the place of God and expecting people to worship us and, and follow us as if we're God. And then we said it, the third principle was the humble servant wins. We got that from verse 35, where it says, if you would be first, Christ said, if you would be first, then you must be last and servant of all. And so we said humility is, is being so filled with a desire to exalt God that you go as low as necessary to serve other people. Then the fourth principle we talked about two weeks ago was your love for a believer reveals your love for Jesus. Jesus taught this to the disciples there. And what's interesting is you go to the book of 1 John, you see John, the disciple John, taught that to the churches. That if you don't love believers, then it shows you really don't truly love God. And your love for believers reflects your love for God. And then the last three principles we're going to look at today in Mark chapter 9, verses 38 through 50. Would you stand with me as I read God's word? If you're able to stand, uh, stand with me as I read Mark chapter 9 and just respect for the word of God. I'm going to read Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 38, really where John kind of throws out an objection there to Christ's rebuke of the disciples. So Mark 9, 38 says, And John said to him, that is Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of cold water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. I think I threw the cold in there. Sorry about that. It must come from another passage. Verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Verse 43, and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go into hell to the unquenchable fire. Verse 45, 
And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. Verse 47, and if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Verse 49, for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your help right now to understand. We truly believe that we cannot understand truth without the Spirit of God revealing it to us. And this actually is a pretty difficult passage to understand. So help us understand the passage. Also help us and guide us in applying this so that we can truly live for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. The fourth principle of relational unity comes from this verse 38 through 41, and that is that unity should center on Jesus and not you. Unity should center on Jesus and not you. Imagine these disciples sitting around in what we believe was Peter's house, and Jesus is, is teaching them. And by verse 38, they probably feel a little bit convicted, right? I mean, Jesus has rebuked them for being prideful. And so that's probably why John here in verse 38 throws out this self-justification. Look at verse 38. He says, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. It kind of reminds me of the child in class that raised his hand, you know, and says, teacher, Billy's not lining up like we are, you know. And it's kind of this self-justification that says, we're special. You know, look at us, Jesus. We're your special disciples. And because we're so special, we want you to tell us how awesome we are. And we'll tell you that we actually told someone to stop because they weren't a part of us. And so you think about Jesus. He's, he's humbled these disciples during his time of teaching. But instead of them admitting and confessing and saying, you know what? Lord, we do have a prideful heart. Here, John comes back and tries to exalt himself up again and in a way that we really do many times, and that is you put someone else down to try to lift yourself up. So you think about these disciples. They had failed in casting out a demon, and it's only a couple of verses before this. And so at some point there, there was a man who was casting out a demon that wasn't a part of, of their group, and they were a little envious of this, maybe a little insecure, like, we failed, but, so Jesus, we're, we're stopping that guy from doing it. And so what you see here is, is this, you might say, fear and envy and insecurity in the hearts of the disciples projected by John. And notice the problem here. Look at the end of verse 38. He says, the problem was that he was not following us. Wait a second. Us? Don't you mean Christ? <laughs> he wasn't following Christ? So what I believe Jesus teaches us here as in his response to these men is that unity should be on Jesus, not you. I mean, think about Jesus' ministry. There's a sense where Jesus' ministry was a ministry of unity and division. Jesus taught the truth, and he is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the only way to the Father. And there's a sense where because of who Jesus is and that he's the truth, it either unites or divides. So if you believe in Jesus and you repent and turn to Jesus, you're united with Christ and with those people who are following Christ. But if you reject Jesus, then you are divided from Christ. So by nature, who Jesus is, that he's truth. Am I on here? Okay, by nature, that Jesus is truth, he actually unites and divides. But what I want you to see here is that the agent of unity or division was and still is the person of Jesus Christ. And so what the disciples did here is they made themselves to be the agent of unity. But, the, but Jesus is the central person that we are to unify around. So what Jesus taught here was that he is the unifying agent of Christian relationships. But the disciples made themselves as that agent of unity. And so notice verse 38. John says at the very end, he was not following us, 
And so Jesus says, hey, listen, verse 39, don't stop him. And he gives two reasons not to stop him. In verse 39, he says, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. In other words, Jesus taught, it would be unusual for a person to do a mighty work in my name, like casting out a demon, and then turn quickly away from Christ. That'd be unusual. And secondly, he gives the second reason in verse 40. He says, for the one who's not against us is for us. In other words, don't fight your own teammates. If someone's fighting on your team, then don't turn against that person. If they're following me, don't oppose them. And in verse 41, he says, truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of cold water to drink, or a cup of water, keep putting the cold in there, maybe because I'm desiring a cup of cold water, who knows? Mine was pretty warm but a cup of water to drink. Um, And it says, because you belong to Christ. So there is the unifying agent right there, Jesus Christ. So notice Jesus is the unifying agent, will by no means lose his reward. So again, I think we can summarize Jesus' teaching by saying this, unity in Christian relationships should center on Jesus and not ourselves. When When we're unified in Christ, there's this unmovable really force in love and in what, we call in the Greek language, agape. I was um, telling a story this past week about Brother Andrew, who was a guy who was a missionary that went behind the Iron Curtain and passed out Bibles. And many times the communists would ask him, you know, um, you know, what language, how do you, how you do, do you and other Christians connect so well? And, and what, what are you, how are you guys communicating like this without being able to speak each other's language? And, and he would tell these communist uh, soldiers, he says, well, we speak another language It's called the language of agape. It's called the language of love. And there was this amazing thing where behind the Iron Curtain, he could communicate with people because they had this connection in Christ. Even though they had no societal connection, their governments were completely separate. They were a different language. They actually had this ability to communicate with one another because they were both united in Christ. And obviously they had some ways they got around that. But the point is they had this instant connection with each other. And what, what Jesus is saying here is this, that Jesus is the one that should unite us. And if you're on the same team, you're united around Jesus Christ. You could say this way, he's our, he's our coach, right? He's our master. We're, we're all, we all the same mission. It's to bring him glory and to advance his gospel. I grew up in Indiana. And so in Indiana, there's basically three things to do. You eat, sleep, and play basketball. The, the fourth thing is really watch the corn grow, but we don't admit that one. But so I, I played basketball all growing up, and it was a lot of fun, and I would sometimes play on teams. A lot of times it was just a group of guys getting together. And when you have a unified group of guys playing on the same team, it's a lot of fun. When you're on a team that's not unified, it's not very much fun. You know, I grew up in the 1990s, and so the big basketball star then was Michael Jordan. So everyone wanted to be Michael Jordan 2.0, right? And so when you're playing with a group of guys out there, a a group that is not unified kind of looks like this. Sometimes you have a ball hog, right? He's the guy that he, you know, Michael Jordan's philosophy was you never miss a shot you don't take. So this guy took it literally and shot every shot he could, right? But he can't really hit. And even if he can, it's not very much fun anyways because you're never going to shoot. And and then you have the lazy guy who sits on one side of the court and he's not, he doesn't have enough energy to run to the other side, so he just sits down there, pass me the ball, you know, and they just long ball it to him. And then you have the critical player that doubles as a coach, you know, every, oh, you actually need to do this. Okay, let me give you guys a plan. And most of the time we're teenagers, he doesn't really know what he's talking about. He thinks he's Bobby Knight, <laughs> the good side of Bobby Knight. But when you actually, and I would say this, the goal many times of us guys that were playing on a team like that was just for us to be the star. Right? We wanted to be the superstar. We wanted to walk away and be like, look how many points I scored. You know, I schooled you. Whatever. Didn't really say that in Indiana, but picked that up in California. <laughs> but really a fun and, and probably good team to be on is one that has the same mission, and that is as a team to win. And we're willing to sacrifice for other people. And so you're willing to go over and take that screen for someone else so they can come around, get the ball, and they can score. And you, you cheer the person who scored a lot. You cheer the person who didn't score a lot but helped the other guy score. And the point is, is that you are unselfishly working together for the same goal with the same mission. 
And I think unity around Jesus is very similar to that. The disciples didn't unify around Christ at this point. They wanted to be the stars. It was like, ah, that guy's not a part of our group. Like, we're this elite group. Jesus, come on. Give us validity here. Like, verify that we're, we're, this is right, right? We're the elite group. And they had this inflated view of their own self-importance. So Jesus pops that balloon. But notice how, in verse 39, he calls them to unity actually in his name. Verse 39, he says, don't stop them for no one who does a mighty work. And then he says, in my name. So that there's the unifying factor. Verse 41, you give a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ. So in verse 41, Jesus gives an illustration of this principle that, that we should be unified around Christ. Is that even if someone does something as insignificant as giving you a cup of water. I mean, think about it. I have a cup of water up here. You think about this cup of water right here. If, what is more important in most people's eyes? to give someone a cup of water or to cast out a demon. So this man did something that in most people's eyes would be pretty important. He exercised, he cast a demon out or to give a cup of water. When Jesus is saying, even in the insignificant things like, hey, here's a cup of water and I'm doing it in the name of Jesus Christ. He says, in in God's eyes, that is actually true greatness and unify around serving the Lord, around serving Christ and serving each other. So Jesus was teaching here that those who serve people, even in the smallest of ways that they do it in my name, they will be rewarded. I remember when, when Dana and I were dating in college and I, uh, we had a lot of fun. We would go, you know, get ice cream together. We'd sit in the football field and watch the football game. And, and, and I remember like having fun, but at some point feeling a little empty, like, man, there's, there's gotta be something more like I'm missing something here. And and we, um, both of us just wanted to love the Lord and, and, and grow together and spiritually. But I can remember sitting in my room one day, and I can't remember if I was reading my Bible or just praying or whatever, but I was there. And the Lord put up on my mind and said, Ben, you are missing something. You're not even, you're not leading her spiritually. You're not praying with her. You're not reading the Bible with her. So we were doing all these really fun things, but kind of, and we had, we'd have fun, but there was like something missing. Sometimes we'd have conflict with each other. And so it was like, what's the answer here? And so after that, I thought, you know what? What we want to do, what I want to do is I want to I pray with her. And so as we were dating, we decided when we were going to have a date, when we were done, we were to sit together and just pray. We decided to go through a book together. And we would go through the book and highlight it and get together and talk about what we learned. We would read some passages of Scripture. We memorized uh, passages of Scripture. And we, st- we were going to church together and we volunteered for the children's ministry and intentionally went into the children's ministry together to serve alongside each other. And you know what happened? We really started not just enjoying our time with each other, but it was like there was this fulfillment. There's this unity that went deeper than just having a lot of fun. It was actually a spiritual unity that took place. And I, and I think that in our relationships, whether they be in a marriage or dating, roommates, whether it be in a church like this, it's important for us as Christians to realize that unity doesn't take place around my greatness or some amazing uh, work that I do or, or sometimes even like in, I'm a part of this elite group of people that actually should take place around Jesus Christ. Let me encourage you, if you're in some type of, if you're in a marriage relationship or dating, let me encourage you to pray together, together as a couple. Before we go to bed, we try to, every night before we go to bed, Dana and I pray together before we go to bed. I heard a, a guy named Dennis Rainey, a number of years ago, he said he did that. I think they've been married for about 50 years. And every night, him and his wife prayed together and never missed a night, which is pretty incredible. And so that, that, that's a good way to be unified. You don't really go to bed at night mad at each other and pray together, right? It doesn't really happen. I encourage you to read the Bible together. Allow the word to direct your marriage. Like, serve the Lord by serving that person. And I would even say, like, figure out how can you and your spouse serve the Lord in some way together. And as as a church member, let me encourage you to seek unity in Christ. Sometimes as church members, we can think to ourselves, like, I don't really feel connected here very well, or I feel left out. And so let me encourage you, find a person, sit down with them, go to coffee, and just pray for that person. Or, Or maybe find a ministry and figure out how you can serve within that ministry. Study the Bible with someone. Make sure that we're... Our relationships are centered around Jesus Christ. Sixth principle that we have is we are to view 
your relationships in light of heaven and hell. Look at verse 42. Really, verse 42 is the climax of the progression of thought that started in verse 37. So verse 37 and verse 30, or 42, verse 37 and verse 42 are really grammatically similar. So notice that. So let's look first in verse uh, 37. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So, so notice how this verse is highlighting a vulnerable, weak person, particularly a child. And look at verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. So both of the verses, look at how they're grammatically similar. And what I think you have here is kind of this progression of, of caring for those people who are weak and vulnerable. And in verse 42, he says, particularly, that's a person that is a little one who believes in me. So who is this person? Well, it could be a young believer. It could be a, a person who has a weak conscience in a particular area. But either way, it's someone who has some kind of spiritual uh, weakness. And it's not, that they're Im- it's not that they're a bad person, right? It's not that they're, it's just that they um, are, that you are um, tempting them to sin in some way and they have some kind of spiritual weakness, whether it be their conscience, whether it be that they're a younger believer. And notice the, the common phrase that you see in these verses here, verse 42 through verse 48, he says the words causes to sin. And that, this phrase causes to sin kind of ties this whole thing together. In fact, what I want to do is I want to read through this and kind of show this to you. And let me also point out there, if, if you're reading out of the same version I am, I'm reading out of the ESV, you'll notice that there's some verses that seem to be skipped over. And so you see that it seems like it goes with the odd verses, right? Verse 43, and then there's no verse 44, then it's verse 45. Well, you might ask, well, why is that? What's going on? You might have a version that includes those in there. Well, basically what the answer to that is, is that the earliest and best manuscripts that we have don't include those verses. So there's many manuscripts for, for um, orig- uh, some copies of the originals that we have. And we can take those manuscripts, compare them with each other, and we can see what, are, what, are the, what do we think the original text had. And so the short answer really to a long probably discussion is this, and that is there's no theologies changed in not having those verses in there. Probably what happened was some kind of scribe maybe, maybe wrote in there uh, to, for clarity or maybe was put in there as a note to say, hey, this is what I think this sh- should be in here. And it was included at some point in the later manuscripts, but the earliest manuscripts don't have it. So anyways, all I have to say is I have complete confidence that this is what Christ um, said and this is what Mark wrote down. But notice verse 42. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin. So there you see that phrase there. Look at verse 43. If your hand causes you to sin, verse 45. If your foot causes you to sin, verse 47. If your eye causes you to sin. In in this passage, Jesus warned his disciples not to cause a young or weak disciple to reject God. Jesus warned them really in one of the strongest ways possible. He he said, "If if you cause a weak believer to sin, it would actually be better for you to drown. Now, that should be kind of shocking to you a little bit. It's like, oh, he's going to a little bit. Yeah, he's kind of using hyperbole. Okay, it's, he's making a point by using an extreme example here. But, but God's pretty serious about this. I mean, what Jesus is saying is like, like God is pretty serious about you causing someone else to sin. In fact, he kind of goes even to the next level where he says in verses 43 through 47 that he uses the hyperbole of saying that it would be better for you actually to cut off a member of your body than continue to sin against someone and go to hell. And again, hyperbole, he's not wanting you to cut off your hand or your foot or your eye, but he's making a, a point here. In each of these verses, he gives the consequence really for offending another believer. In other words, he gives the consequence for sin. What's the consequence for sin? It's hell. It's separation from God forever. So this instruction is not to literally cut off your hand, your foot, or your eye. Okay? Did I make that clear? (laughs) So nobody, please go home and do that. Again, this is hyperbole, intentionally exaggerating to make a point. But God's point here is how serious he is about how you treat another person. And how serious is God about how you treat another person? Look at verse 43. If your hand causes you to sin, and the idea is to sin against someone, it's better for you to enter life crippled 
than with two hands to go into hell to the unquenchable fire. What does Jesus mean by that? I believe what Jesus is teaching is this, is that the heart that has pride in it and, and sin in it and doesn't care about sinning against other people, that's the type of person that goes to hell. And the type of person who goes to heaven is the person who loves people and cares and wants to nurture and disciple them, and they'll do whatever it takes not to offend, offend that person, but to help them spiritually. So these three verses are warnings that describe the type of people who don't follow Christ and the type of people who do follow Christ. So the person who follows Christ causes weak people to sin and they don't really care. But the person who follows Christ actually will do whatever is necessary. I mean, it's like, not literally, but it's like, I'll cut my hand off if it, if it can help this person not cause them to sin. So they'll do whatever is necessary to protect the spiritual, spiritually weak and care for them. And I think it's important to note here, too, that Jesus is not given a formula of how to get to heaven. You know, it's like if you just discipline yourself, maybe even cut off your hand, you can go to heaven. He's not doing that here. He's giving a general description of saying these are the type of people that go to heaven. These are the type of people that go to hell. This is not a formula of how to get to heaven or how to go to hell here. Let me note two observations here. First of all, Jesus believed in hell. The word hell here is the word Gehenna, which was a garbage dump on the southwest, in the southwest valley of Jerusalem. And and notice how he describes hell. Look at verse 43. He says, hell is a place of unquenchable fire. Verse 48, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So Jesus clearly taught that after this life is done, there's going to be something called hell and it's a very terrible place with fire and torment in a sense hell is the wage that each person earns at the end of his life think about it a person goes through their life and they reject god they sin against god they sin against people all they care about is themselves and god says okay when you're dead i'll give you what you earned your whole life you can be by yourself you can be by yourself under the rejection of god with a payment of your sin. That's why Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. Or you could say it this way, eternal death, separation from God. And one evidence that you are, are this type of person, listen to this, one evidence that you're this type of person is how you deal with relationships. So Jesus has a shock factor here that I think actually was intended for the disciples. It's like, you guys were offending this young believer and saying, don't do this anymore. Actually, it's very serious that you did that. Like, if you're willing to sin against another believer just to exalt yourself, you need to ask yourself, are you really a believer? And so I think the second observation I want to make here is really the principle we're talking about. And that is we need to view our relationships in light of heaven and hell. And as you deal with another brother or sister in Christ, you need to think about How do my actions and my words affect this person? Think of my my relationships in light of eternity. And sometimes we can be, and I know I can do this myself, I can be so self-consumed with with pride that I can just bulldoze people because I got to get done what I got to get done, right? Sometimes I think like that. Sometimes I I know I can be narrow-minded and think like, okay, this is what I need to do. And so this is what I want. And I, I can forget to pull back and be like, okay, wait a second. Let's give this perspective from eternity. Like, what will really matter? What will really matter in, like, a million years? So that's one question that we ask over and over in our family. We try to ask, and we do ask in our family over and over. And that is, what will really matter in this situation in one million years from now? Like, that's, that's looking at these problems in light of eternity. I mean, just kind of throw it out there. Think about that. Think about, like, your life this past week, maybe even this morning, as you deal with conflict with your spouse, or your children, or other believers in the church, look at that in light of eternity. So what will matter in this situation one million years from now? So will it really matter that your child had that dish in their hand and they dropped it on the ground and it broke into a million pieces? So think about that. In one million years from now, will that dish really matter to you? Or will it matter that you yelled at them, you slapped them in the back of the head and called them an idiot. And I'm being serious. 
right? Will, will it actually matter how you responded? What will matter more? Will it actually matter that you, you caused them to sin? The Bible puts it this way. Don't provoke your kids to wrath. Or, or you could think about it this way. What will matter in one million years from now in this situation? Maybe, maybe you ask your spouse, could you pick something up from the store for me? You know, and they walk to the door and it's like, oh, I didn't do it. And you're like, the one thing I asked, the one thing, right? And so you're thinking to yourself, can't even depend on this person. And so what will matter in one million years from now? Will it matter they forgot to get that from the store? Or will it matter that you decided to give them the silent treatment, try to bring them pain by withholding your kindness and your love? And, you know, they brought you pain by not bringing that home, so I'm going to bring them pain by showing them that I'm not happy with them. Right? Right? Think about it. What will really matter to you? And that's looking at life from God's perspective and really in light of eternity. We must ask in humility, is there something I might need to sacrifice for the spiritual well-being of that person? I, I go back to even the idea that I talked about with the, the parent and that dropping on the ground. Let me recommend a hyperbole. If that dish causes you to sin against your child in that way, maybe you should throw all your dishes in the trash. <laughs> Instead of worshiping those dishes and loving them more than God and your children. And listen, and, and, and according to Jesus' hyperbole, and go to hell. And that's strong, isn't it? That's strong. That's what Jesus is saying here. Like, you, we take things and we worship things. We love those things more than we love people. But you know what God loves? He loves people. <laughs> he loves people. And from his perspective, when he looks at life, and as we look at life from one million years from now, what will really matter? Like, what really matters? To ma- what matters to God are those people because God loves people. And he demonstrated that by sending his son to die on the cross. And the last point we have here is that relational difficulties refine your heart. Do you know relationships are really good things? I mean, I should say it this way. Relational conflict are really good things. Now, oh boy, you're like, that is hard for me to understand. Well, even harder for you to understand is probably this passage here. <laughs> because I labored through this trying to figure this out. And I was thinking, you know, as, as there's children running around this camp and <laughs> trying to study this passage, I'm thinking, what does this mean? I read one commentator. He said, in verse 49, there are 12 different views of this verse by evangelical commentators. Like, legitimate views. <laughs> Most exegetes of this passage don't even agree with one another about the interpretation. And so I studied this and studied this. And I could go through all those. And most of you would probably yawn not really care. And some of you really would care. So let's go to lunch this week and talk about it, okay? I'm just going to give you my conclusion. So verse 49 says, for everyone will be salted with fire. So the question is, who is this everyone? Well, I think everyone means everyone. So all people will face some kind of fire. So the next question is, what is the fire they are salted with? My conclusion is this. The salt and the fire of this verse deals with the salt and the fire of refinement. The picture, I believe, is of a Jewish altar where a lamb would be placed on the altar and you'd have salt and you'd have fire that would consume that sacrifice. And you could say it this way, it, it, it purifies the sacrifice, the salt and the fire, brings purity to the sacrifice. I was looking up this, this word salted. It's the verb that Jesus uses, and it's used one time in the Bible in the um, Old Testament Septuagint, and that's Leviticus 2.13. And this is where God commands Israel to take salt and make sure it's a part of every sacrifice. And so, so I believe what he's talking about here, he's talking about the fires of refinement. Fires of refinement. So what I believe verse 49 is teaching is that every person will face fires of refinement. Now, what are those fires of refinement? Well, what's Jesus talking about in this passage? He's talking about relationships. Difficult relationships. And I believe what Jesus is saying is this. Everyone is salted with the fires of refinement, and there's no better test for your faith in God than when you're tested with a very difficult relationship. There's no better test for your faith in Christ than the fires of relational conflict. Relationships reveal your pride, your sin, and your self-worship, don't they? If you're like, I don't know what that means. I'm an only child. I have my own room. Get a roommate, right? 
And if you're, if you're single and you're like, I live by myself and I'm actually having a, a good time, get married. Right? I do premarital counseling with a lot of couples in the past couple of years, about two to three a year. And you always have that one couple who's like, we never fight. We always, we never have any problems. We just love each other, you know. And it's like, listen, when you get married, you'll find out that you're the most selfish, prideful person that walked this planet. And if you don't find that out, you'll be told that. <laughs> and, you know, you might think to yourself, well, I'm, I'm sugar and spice and everything nice. But relationships reveal who you really are. Relationships reveal that, you know, you think about this, when, when a person shakes you, what comes out? You know, if it's, if it's sin, gin, and a lot of spin, it's probably what's on the inside, isn't it? A lot of times I'll, with my kids, I'll take a glass and I'll say, you know, hey, look at this, what's in here? And I was like, you know, and I'll take another glass and I'll, I'll pour it out. And I was like, oh, milk didn't come out. In fact, I, I did this with my son, Ivan, the other day. And I was like, milk didn't come out. I was like, why did milk come out? He's like. I don't know. And I was like, yeah. And I was like, he's like, oh, because there's water in there. I'm like, ah, okay. And so I took a cup and I was like pouring it. And I'm like, oh, what in the world? Milk didn't come out. Daddy, because there's water in there. Yeah, because you know what happens when you, when you shake something or push something and it pours out? What comes out? What was on the inside? That's kind of what relationships do, don't they? They kind of shake us and something comes out. And what comes out? Oh, it's not my fault. Like that person made me say that, right? Well, you don't know the problems I have. Yeah, I don't know the problems you have on the inside. What comes out is what's on the inside. And that, that's kind of the blessing of, of relationships and conflict. And that is it refines you. And when relational conflict comes, many people in relationships run. They harden their hearts or they seek to put others down to put themselves up through fighting. Or they lash out. So, so the question is, how do you handle relational conflict and the revealer of your heart? In fact, I just think about our, our oh boy. I don't know what just happened there. There we go. I think about just our principles here. And just think through these principles, the first six principles, and then think about the last principle, how, how we deal with conflict reveals our heart and for number one if you're a person who doesn't really care about the truth but just about being right what does that reveal about your heart like if you ignore your pride number two if you ignore your pride and you seek continual exaltation like john did what does that reveal about your heart if you resist humility as something to be shunned what does that reveal if you don't sacrifice and love other believers what does that reveal about your love for God. If, if unity is based upon what, what makes you comfortable, like, well, I'll do that because it makes me comfortable. I don't want to do that. And what does that reveal about your heart? Think about the last one. If you sin against someone and you don't care, what does that reveal about your eternal destination? So the point here Jesus makes is that relationships refine Each person will face the fire of relational difficulties, and some will show that they're unregenerate. But for a believer, the saltiness actually is good. It shows that we are humbly pursuing the Lord. So look at verse 50. Salt is good. So the refinement of this salty difficulty is good, and it shows that you're distinct. So look at verse 50. Salt is good, but if the salt, the distinction, has lost its saltiness, so if you're not distinct from the world and how you deal with relationships, how will you make it salty again? So he says, have salt in yourselves. What does it mean to have salt in yourselves? Again, he's saying, be distinct in how you deal with with, uh, relational difficulties. And what does that look like? And be at peace with one another. As believers, what should distinguish us from unbelievers is that we're at peace with one another. But let me show you this to end our service here this morning. Go to 1 Peter. And I like to go back and forth between 1 Peter because, again, Mark wrote this under the direction of Peter. And Peter took what Jesus taught him and he taught the churches. Two weeks ago, I gave an example of Joshua Harris. Remember that? The former, former pastor and author. And it's interesting, you think about his response to his marital problems was what? To run 
You separate and then get a divorce. And what's interesting is right after that, he revealed he wasn't a Christian. Relationships are revealers of the heart. And we can sometimes look at conflict negatively and listen, we don't like sin, we don't like conflict, but actually God can turn it into something good. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, in verse 6. So think about all these things that Peter would have heard as Jesus taught. And in verse 6, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. There's difficulties. And what do these difficulties do? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, much more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire. So that so these these trials are like a fire that tests the genuineness of your faith in God. Well, what are some of those trials? Well, he talks about some in there, but I think some of them are relationships. Look at verse uh, chapter 2. Look down at verse 13. There he talks about authorities. And again, who is the authority? Who is the, the Caesar in charge? Nero. That's pretty painful when he persecuted the Christians. How about verse 18? He, he covers relational problems between masters and servants. So, you know, you might say work-based relationships. Look down in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. He deals with marital relationships. Verse 8, he deals with relationships that cause suffering. Verse Chapter 4, verse 9, he deals with relationships in the church. He says, some of you might be tempted to grumble against each other, you know. So, oh, this person, this person, well, actually, instead, show hospitality. And then look at chapter 4 in verse 12. He says in 1 Peter 4, 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Sometimes we can be like, oh, I can't believe that person said that to me. Don't be surprised. Or you wouldn't believe what my wife says to me and what she does. Yeah. So I have people sometimes in counseling, they'll say, they'll say, now you might, this might surprise you. No, probably won't. Because <laughs> we're all the same, right? I have sin. You have sin. Like sinners sin. We all have struggles. And the question isn't if we're going to have those relational difficulties. The question is, are we going to deal with it in a way that God wants us to? Are we going to follow the principles of Christ? Which means, number one, we're committed to God and his word and his way and to his son, Jesus Christ. It also means we're committed to living life the way he wants us. And that is to love one another. To love one another. And so... Relational difficulties refine our hearts. Are you struggling with any kind of relational problem right now? You know, the answer probably is, I could guess it, 100%. Yes. (laughs) If not, it'll probably happen this week. And if you don't think it's happening, maybe look in the mirror. Right? What should we do when we have relational difficulties? Let's humble ourselves. Let's go to God's word and to Christ and seek to confess our sins to him, to those people that we're maybe in conflict with. Let's seek to pursue the principles of the Lord. And today, let's make sure our unity is, is focused on Jesus, not ourself. Let's view our relationships in light of heaven and hell. And then let's see relational difficulties as a way for us to be more like Jesus. Father, we are so thankful for the clarity of your word. Sometimes it is hard for us to understand difficult passages. But we believe that when Jesus spoke, particularly in that passage, that he had a message for us. And I pray each one of us in here who are believers will grab a hold of that today. We won't just leave this place and think, well, that was a good, good thought or good word. But I think God will, I pray we'll hold on to it and say, God, we commit our life to the principles of Christian unity as preached by Jesus Christ. God, we desire our church to be unified. We want our friendships to be unified, our marriages to be unified, our our home sibling groups to be unified. We want to be unified around Christ. 
So God, by your grace, will you help us to do that? Oh God, I'm sorry, and as a church, I say we're sorry for our pride that gets in the way of that. Our pride that rejects you and rejects people. May we see that pride and that sin towards people as so serious because that really, that sin is what causes people to go to hell. So God, may we have the humility and faith in Christ that seeks to reconcile and to love like you love. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, let me encourage you this week to take some time, maybe even today, to get alone with the Lord and talk to the Lord about your relationships. And I want you to know, church, that as your pastor, I want to help shepherd you. And if there's something you're struggling with, first of all, if it's with your relationship with God, I would love to talk to you about that. If you're not a believer in here, uh, we would love to talk to you about how you can know Christ. And then secondly, um, if you have relational difficulties, like I want to be there to help you solve those, work through those, and really pursue the glorified God in those. I have something really exciting I want to talk to you about for the next uh, about 10 minutes here, so we're going to go a little longer. Hope that's okay. But um, we have two of our missionaries here, Ray and Jennifer. Would you guys come on up here? And uh, I'd like to um, come on up here. Unfortunately, Roger is not here today because he's preaching somewhere else. Um, and I know that you have a long history at the church. I don't. I've <laughs> only been here for a year. But um, I know we appreciate your ministry and what God is doing. And my, I have a, a big heart for children's ministries, as you heard earlier, and particularly with CEF. And so 100% supportive of what God's doing for your ministry. And what I want him to do is just come up here, give us an update about what's going on in their ministry and their life. And as a church, um, as, as a church, we're committing to praying for them and supporting them. And so that means a number of different things. But number one, that means we have to be informed. And so I guess my request to you as a church, would you just take out a pen and paper and write down some ways that you can pray for them um, here and, uh, and then I'll end uh, in prayer for you guys, okay? Come on up, Ray. God bless you guys. Come on up and give us an update. Good morning. One of the things I always think about is, uh, you know, when you're talking about children's ministry is, are we effective? Are we accomplishing anything uh, as we go out and share? I had the opportunity, I was sharing the ministry with a, a lady uh, here just the other day. And uh, this lady, um, is, she has a ministry for trafficked women. And this lady herself had been trafficked for 10 years of her life through her teens and her early 20s. And she was telling me that prior to being in this bondage that she had heard the gospel as a child and that all through, <clears throat> all through those years as she was basically in slavery it was just seeing knowing that there was a, a god who loved her and remembering those verses that she had been taught as a child that those became the uh the ladder the stair steps that were um in her heart and mind that allowed her to come to freedom. Uh, and now uh, they're out in Acton and they're building a ministry for tra trafficked women and, and whatnot. I'm not here to share their ministry, but uh, it, it, is, it is so critical for these young kids. Pastor started out mentioning that kids don't even know who Adam and Eve are. They don't know uh, any longer. Why do we celebrate Christmas? Where did that come from? Santa Claus seems like a good thing. They have no idea what Easter is. And uh, we, we have the opportunity to go and share with these kids the word of God. We are the Hubbards, and uh, we did attend this church from, we started here in May of 1990. It was called Valley Bible at the time. We were here all through those years as we transitioned from the 
facility over there in, at Bernard Street to this facility. Uh, and uh, honestly, in these walls and in this ground, I have real blood and skin that still exist in this building. Uh, as I was a deacon here and we served and we, uh, we shared and we built alongside of you. This is still what we have never transferred our membership to our church down there. We consider <clears throat> this to be the church uh, where we belong. And there's some reasons for that I, out there where we're serving. I go to Independent Baptist Church and Southern Baptist Church and community churches, and we're, uh, we're not ecumenical by any stretch of the imagination, but uh, by being a member here, it opens doors for me to go to uh, various churches and not be locked in and have openings otherwise. We are with Child Evangelism Fellowship. If you hear CEF, um, that's what it stands for, Child Evangelism Fellowship. Um, CEF is a worldwide ministry. Between In the last two years, uh, it has grown worldwide 11%. What that means in physical numbers is the worldwide ministry used to be um, 20 million, um, uh, 20.3 million, and now it's 25.5 million kids that have heard the gospel through the outreach of Child Evangelism Fellowship. We are in every single country except North Korea, and we stand uh, with those people. There is a trained uh, group of people in South Korea that's ready for a gospel invasion of North Korea. Be praying about that. That's one of those things you want to be writing down. Um, here in the United States, this part of the world, uh, you can imagine United States, Europe, in general, the outreach is, is sort of declining. But that's not true here in Southern California. Here in Southern California, uh, the ministry continues to grow. Uh, when we left this church body, we went to the Antelope Valley. That's where the Lord called us to. And uh, uh, honestly, I want to thank you so much for your support. There are individuals in this church that uh, support us. The church supports us. And if it weren't for your foundation of prayer and financial support, we couldn't do what we do. But uh, anyhow, the Child Evangelism Fellowship Ministry has three main parts, three, three main outreaches. That is good news clubs, five-day clubs, and then fair ministry. We just completed five-day clubs. That's what we do in the summer. Um, out in the Antelope Valley, we had 24 volunteers. Those 24 vol volunteers did about uh, 20 clubs. And... Uh, somewhere between 150 and 200 children heard the gospel through that outreach. We do some venues that are like vacation Bible schools. We go into the, um, uh, we have small churches that can't do their own. We have, uh, but anyhow, we, we go and we do that with, and, and you know that uh, um, Josh Rivera has recruited some of your kids to go get the CYIA, that's Christian Youth in Action Training, and they come back to this area and they do those five-day clubs. So our last five-day club just ended Friday night, and uh, we completed that season. We're moving into the fair ministry. Out in the Antelope Valley, we have the Antelope Valley Fair, um, and it starts on the 16th. It'll go to the uh, 25th or 26th, it's 10 days, whichever that is. Essentially from 4 to 11, those 10 days, we're, we're going to be doing wordless book bracelets. We use our volunteers from Good News Club and five-day clubs, and they present. Essentially, we average about 50 kids a day that will come sit and hear the gospel for those 10 days. And that ends up being about 500 kids that hear the gospel. We also share the ministries of uh, Good News Club and five-day clubs with the parents as they come and, and hear. So um, be praying for the, the ministry of the, uh, the fair ministry that's coming up here just this next week. In, uh, on September 25th, 
Antelope Valley adopts a day at the Pomona Fairground. And so we will be out at the Pomona Fairground one day and, and we go and, and serve there. Again, sharing the wordless book with people, uh, with the kids. Um, and then right now we're, Jennifer and I are fingerprinting people and recruiting and, and getting people all equipped for Good News Clubs. Good News Club is in the public school. We really aren't doing any in, in anybody's private homes. We're doing all of our um, outreach in the public school. And uh, we have about 108 volunteers. That's what it took last year to do um, Good News Clubs. We were in 15 schools. Uh, we will be somewhere between... Um, 18 and 20 schools as we start up here in late September and early October. We got some new schools coming on. We got churches that are excited. And we got a whole bunch of people to train. And that's kind of my role is I get to go in. I get to help people form a theology of ministry. We help equip people. Sort of what you got to understand is the gospel's the gospel, and, and we understand that. But... Uh, CEF has a philosophy of ministry that doesn't come out of what you know. It comes out of what you do and how you can share and it put the gospel into a Bible story. So it no longer is just a story that happened some 2,000 to 4,500 years ago, but it's really a evangelistic lesson that shares about and we're, we're real clear about the person and work of Jesus being in every Bible lesson and how to integrate that such that it comes out and, and people, uh, these kids, understand when they make a decision for Christ that they are, they are deciding for the Christ of the Bible, not the one that the Mormons invented or something else. But they know what it is that they believe. And so uh, that's my role, is to really equip people to share and, and do so in an accurate way. Um, and Norm and I were talking before service. You know, it's, it's almost like being reti retired. When you get to sit with people and share with them the gospel, it's just fun. Um, it, it's just, and Jennifer and I just enjoy doing that. Um, just quickly, we, uh, the Hubbards now, um, if you look at the picture of us on the back wall, we do have 13 children and most of you know us, but I see some that I don't recognize. Um, we now have four grandchildren in Idaho. We have three grandchildren in Ohio. We have three grandchildren in Oklahoma. We are expecting our 12th grandchild to arrive, what is it, February, March, in uh, Waco, Texas. And we only have one remaining grandchild in California. Our heart is kind of getting scattered a little bit. Um, and the children that you see with us, Daniel's not a child anymore. He has been promoted to legally at least an adult uh, as of July. And uh, uh, those five are the ones that still live with us, and the rest are adults, and they're doing adult-type things and getting married and having kids, and all of that's very exciting for us. Um, and uh, so if you hear about us in some other state, that's kind of... Uh, but we love serving here in Antelope Valley, and for now, that's where the Lord has, has us serving. And uh, that ministry is growing. It's exciting. Um, and I hope that, uh, oh, I wanted to share with you, um, something that has, I have been praying, <clears throat> praying about for many, many years when Jennifer and I were called into this ministry, the opportunity to serve here in Ventura County did not exist. And so, but this has been our heart and, and we have, uh, we tried to, to build some stuff here and, and couldn't. I hope you know now that you have new CEF missionaries here in the Antelope Valley. If you don't know Olu and Deanna yet, you should uh, meet them. 
be praying for them as well. Uh, they have not got the full training uh, from CEF yet. Be praying that they will get that complete training. I have uh, volunteered to come back here and be uh, uh, available to them as they equip, as they do five-day clubs and good news clubs here in, in this area. Um, you're not allowed to quit supporting us in the process of that. <laughs> we, we hope not. But Olu and, and Deanna are, are fantastic um, missionaries here and great representatives for CEF. Be praying for them. Or stay right up here. And uh, let me pray for you guys and uh, pray for your ministry. And um, I think, have you, has anyone met Olu? You've raised your hand if you met Olu? Okay, some of us have, so he's a good guy. Actually, lives right down the road here. So maybe you can put a good word in for our church, okay? Anyways, <laughs> let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your ministry that you have led Ray and Jennifer and their family to uh, CEF. I, I really believe that your heart is for children. Jesus said, let the little children come to me. Don't forbid them for this is what the kingdom of God is like. And, and there's a sense where people a lot of times look down on children and see them as insignificant. But in your eyes, they are very significant because they are souls for whom Christ died. And God, if a child can receive you, it can change their entire life. So I pray you'll continue to use Ray and Jennifer as they minister in this way. Pray that you'll give them many um, more volunteers to come up this year in the Good News Clubs. I pray that you'll um, give him grace and strength as he seeks to equip uh, these leaders and these churches to give the gospel to children. And I pray you'll continue to... Uh, provide for their families, supply in that way for them. I even pray for Ventura County. You know, God, it is our desire that we serve children of this community. And and my particular personal prayer is that Santa Susana Elementary would open us um, open up for us to do a Good News Club. And for whatever reason, it hasn't yet. So, God, I pray you open that door for us. And, uh, and may the gospel even penetrate into North Korea, into to those children there who... The whole country, in some senses, is without Christ, but in particular the children. 